When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And this interview is being published from Dan Paris's excellent Keep Calm and Carry On podcast. In the interview, Dan, who is also a host on the NBN, talks to David Feingold, who's a university president, about the economics of higher education. So we thought it would be completely appropriate to post it on the future of higher education. I hope that you enjoy the interview. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Keep Calm and Carry On. I'm your host, Daniel Paris. I've been thinking a lot uh, lately about the economics and the value chain associated with education. As many of you know, I came from academia before making the transition to business. I'm also a parent with a high schooler about to embark on the journey of a college education. Having spent the last 25 years thinking about customers and producers, value, determining the value, accountability, governance, done it almost entirely in a, in a business context, naturally. There are metrics, standards, expectations, definitions even of those goals. I may agree with them or not in regard to how, say, the Coca-Cola company is doing or its valuation, its board oversight and so forth, but at least it is a reasonably well thought out and a somewhat transparent exercise. Not so for education. Are the students customers in a traditional sense? Are the teachers manufacturers? Who is accountable to whom? To help me answer that question today, I've called in a high-profile expert. My guest is David Feingold. He is the president of Chatham College in Pittsburgh. Prior to that, he was a high-ranking faculty member and administrator at Rutgers and USC. He has conducted research and written at length on a wide variety of issues, many of them involving this question of the value chain, the responsibility chain for education. David, thank you uh, so much for agreeing to be on the show. My pleasure, Dan. Good to be with you. I want to start, as it were, in the beginning. Primary school uh, up to perhaps high school, there's a little less ambiguity there, at least I feel it. It's not as much a consumer choice, more of a one-way flow. Our expectations as parents and as taxpayers is that the children go to school to be taught, at least at that level. But even there, you begin to have the beginnings maybe, maybe not as actively, but the beginnings of this tension between manufacturer and consumer, producer, 
and accountability. Uh, how how does that end up setting the stage for what's going to become a much more, I would argue, much more ambiguous and conflicted situation at uh, the high school and college level? Yeah, I, I think within public schools at the K through 12 level, it, it's not so much of an issue. Um, although you could argue that in those places that have uh, a voucher system or a, uh, as they have in England, um, uh, locally managed schools where the funding follows the student, there, there is some of that competition for students. We have it here in the U.S. with charter schools. Where I think you see it more at the K-12 level is, is I think, with, with your own son and many of those who are opting for private school, the student isn't the cu- customer, but you could argue the parents are. And so there's a bit of an arms race among private schools for um, what's going to attract uh, the, the parents and the students, which may or may not be what is always going to be best in terms of the educational outcomes for the students. So at, at the uh, junior level, there isn't much of a vote given to the child. They are children. It's expected to be a one-way flow of established knowledge. There's a tremendous political divide in this country as to what that established knowledge could consist of, but it is a one-way flow. In high school, it begins to be to become more of the the consumer, that the children themselves begin to have a sensibility as to whether what they're purchasing through either taxes of their parents or directly is a suitable, appropriate, relevant. And right now, again, we're in an environment in which a lot of this is politicized. But this this notion of a consumer, I can feel it again in, in my, my high school is already, cons- not, I'm not going to say concerned, but has the sensibility of a consumer, which is a shift from where it was when he was a younger, younger child. Yeah. No, I, I think that that's right. Um, it's not just that the, the students are more mature. So I know having gotten to know Sasha pretty well, he's a very astute young man and, and is already thinking about uh, things like markets and, and consumer preferences. But I think also the difference from for most schools between high school and, and the earlier grades is typically there's, there's not much choice in what you're taking in the earlier grades, but in high school, you tend to see more electives, more options. We tend to see more streaming in terms of students who may be bound for the most selective colleges, those who are otherwise college-bound, those who may be thinking about other post-secondary options. And so there's a bit more, I think, of a give and take around both what students learn and how. I think the other thing we're seeing is, you know, as, as the internet um, and web have, have greatly expanded choices, we've got more options for homeschooling. Just talking to a, a guy who who used to run a number of private uh, of charter schools here in Pittsburgh of the growth in the micro school movement. Is micro school? I'm not even certain. I'm aware of that. Right, I wasn't either. But uh, apparently, this really has grown during COVID, where everyone was sort of forced forced into virtual schooling. And so, what you see in some states is is a group of ten or twelve parents finding a single teacher who will basically provide a kind of personalized, comprehensive education for their student. And so they can get funding for it similar to what happens with homeschooling and funding flowing that way. But you're seeing some states having legislative uh, frameworks that allow it. So he mentioned thinking about providing infrastructure to support that happening, that sort of, uh, you know, uh, very decentralized schooling, which was interesting to me because one of the guys I got to know in my research, uh, James Tooley over in, in, from, from England, he wrote a book called The Beautiful Tree that was about uh, how 
education tended to happen in small villages in rural Africa or India, which was around the biggest tree in the village. The elders would come together and the young people would come. And that was how they did schooling. And he was talking about a return to that kind of micro control where the families really have a stake in the education of the students may have certain advantages, particularly in, in systems where the public school system is not working very well. And in a microeducation context, it's clear that the parents who are hiring the teacher and in an intimate setting that is a small format setting, that they have a significant voice in the curriculum and in what is being taught to their children. And that is lost when you try to achieve scale and you have a, a you know large systems of, of, of education. But that does tighten up the value chain pretty pretty significantly uh, and allows uh, both parents or students to probably make changes or adjust on the fly and the teacher as well if things are, are not going well, which again, those types of zigs and zags are harder in, in a large scale format. Once we leave higher edge, uh, once we leave high school, though, we get into kind of the main event where a great deal of this is just frankly confusing. What, what strikes me as a historian and I look at uh, university or college education is that it, it still has its roots, and somebody may dispute this, but it has its roots in a medieval guild system and a uh, five, six, seven hundred year old system of of training and education uh, that is been transplanted into the modern world, and the the even the terminology, deans and faculty, and uh, all have medieval roots. Uh, if I'm operate in the world of modern finance of the University of Chicago where for better or for worse, often for worse, there are clear lines of accountability and responsibility. This just doesn't fit. It's a real mess, the clash of, of these two cultures. And uh, I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about that. Your day job involves thinking about that, but you've also written about it a great deal about, and I, I would use the economic terms if I can, because I think most of my audience is, is uh, tuned for that, about incentives and signaling and pricing and accountability and governance. And I, I, I'm just scratching my head when I think about higher education, and as you have for the last 30 years to some extent. Where, where, where do you want to begin in, in, in trying to parse these issues of the economics of, of higher education from a structural perspective, consumer, manufacturer, signaling, pricing? Sure. So uh, it, it's obviously a very big topic, but uh, first to reinforce your 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 guild and the deep roots of this. So as you know, my wife and I met in Oxford. I was there for my uh, doctorate or or DPhil as they call it, and and there the heads of colleges are still called things like master and warden. So it really goes back to those roots. And New College was formed in the 14th century. So that gives you an idea of how deep these roots are. I think one way to really illustrate your point around incentives it goes back to actually the very first thing I ever published back in uh, in night when was it now 1988 um, on education and this was uh, basically the core of what ended up being my doctorate. It was called the low skill equilibrium and it started with a simple problem. So it it said when I got to England, having come from the states, I was really surprised knowing the roots of Oxford and Cambridge and whatnot, that at that time, fewer than half of young people were staying in school after 16, and that only just over 10% were getting a degree. And the prevailing explanation in England at the time was that this was a, a working class issue, that the bulk of England's population was not interested in further education, and therefore that the system uh, was basically serving the demand. 
And my, my thesis, the low skill equilibrium challenged that. It basically said Britain has been trapped since the post-war period in a, a place where supply and demand are balanced, but the whole system is being rationed by the treasury because at that time, paradoxically, the, it was entirely free to get a university degree. So they didn't just pay for tuition, but they also paid for room and board. So it was very expensive to the government for each person who went. And so what they did is they had a two-tier exam system at 16 and 18, and you had to pass it, and it was graded on a curve. So only 20% could pass the second exam. And as a result, it rationed this scarce good of higher ed. And so my, my thesis said, actually, young people are responding and institutions are responding to the incentives in the system. And if you change that, so you reward post-secondary colleges and universities to take more students and you change the exam system to measure what students know, not to sort them as to who can go, that you would change behavior. And what's fascinating is that in, in just over a generation, Britain now graduates a higher percent of their population with a bachelor's degree than the U.S. So the systems, the incentives all changed and behavior changed dramatically. And so I think this is a system where there are a lot of misaligned incentives, but if you get them right, it can really affect behavior and economic outcomes. In the U.S., correct me if I'm not wrong, if I'm wrong, is the opposite end of the spectrum, at least in theory, where there is some expectation that a very high percentage of people will go on after high school to obtain some sort of college or university degree, but the the range of those degrees is enormous. Uh, the German system, in contrast, liberal arts majors are a, a handful of people, and everyone else goes on to vocational higher education, whereas uh, somebody, and I'll pick on accounting. Why not pick on accounting? It's it's so deserving of being picked on. You can get a PhD in accounting or uh, an undergraduate degree in accounting, and it has the same university degree, BA, uh, uh, MA, PhD, as a person who ha might have a, a PhD in history or engineering or something. They're all treated identically the same in the US, whereas in other educational systems, there's a distinguishing between vocational training and uh, liberal arts training. No, they don't even use the term liberal arts. So we, we have a wide open system. England after the war had a very, very constrained system. I think our wide open system creates even more signaling issues because everyone's expectation of getting a college degree and what will come out of that ends up adding to the confusion. Are we almost, should we be a more sensitive to or supportive of, hey, some of this actually should be considered vocational training? Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of things, you know, I think the virtue of the U.S. system is that it, it it's more egalitarian, so it doesn't stream people early, and it provides a lot of opportunities for second chances. So because we're credit-based rather than having a, a, a more end-of-year degree-based system, people can enter and exit, and if they didn't work out the first time, they can come back and still get a degree, and they can do it throughout their lives. Other country systems tend to be much more oriented toward first degrees and, and going in through a progression. And as you're right, most countries have a much more developed vocational and technical system than we do. In the U.S., a lot of that occurs, particularly through community colleges. And community colleges are, we could do a whole episode just on them, right? But they tend to have three different missions. So they're juggling a transfer mission. So one thing a lot of people don't know is more than half of the people who end up with a bachelor's degree in the U.S. didn't don't get the degree from the place they started. 
So actually transferring is a very common outcome in the U.S., either from community college to four-year or among four-year institutions. But they have the transfer one, then they do more vocationally oriented terminal degrees. So AAS degrees or certificates where people come from school and they're doing a lot of what Germany would do through the apprenticeship system or, or other countries do through that. And then they often have a, a workforce development or custom training model where they'll do either credit or non-credit based, but more vocational training for people who are already in the workforce. And so they're trying to juggle all those three missions in a single institution and sometimes you find where there's a challenge where the people and what they're doing on the workforce development side, where they're working closely with employers, isn't what they're teaching when people are going through to get the first degree, even though that's what the signals from employers are. So there, there's a real challenge there in the system. Another thing, place where I would say there is a, a, a big market failure in the U.S. higher ed system is with regard to pricing. Right. So so what what many people don't recognize is that what is the list price of colleges, which is what we often see cited as college costs are out of control for most institutions doesn't resemble what's what students are actually paying for college. So you see this in the most elite schools like a Harvard or an Amherst or whatnot, where they have a very high sticker price. But they also say any family under $75,000 will meet their full financial needs. So it can be free. But for students from first-generation families, if they're in a school where they don't get good college advising, they may not know that. If you take a place like Chatham or most of our peers, which is most of private uh, colleges and universities in the U.S., you see that almost every student is getting some form of scholarship, either merit or need-based aid or both. And so the sticker price, Chatham, you know, we're a small, elite, liberal arts college in a beautiful location, but actually the net cost to come to us is cheaper than the University of Pittsburgh two minutes down the road, which is the large public university. And that's for in-state, much less out-of-state with the subsidy that they get. So, so having consumers just understand what it really costs can often be a real challenge in the U.S. And that's not a challenge you see in most other countries because there, the vast majority of institutions are public. And so there's a single price. It, it may differ from country to country, but, but what people are going to pay is usually very transparent. So let's, let's jump into that consumer proposition, almost at the philosophical end uh, for the U.S. Is, is an 18-year-old a student or a consumer? A student implies one-way transmission, almost passive in the sense of you don't have too much in the way of choice, and uh, you're there to learn what is being taught. A consumer is a completely different entity. And I, I think that there's a substantial tension there that it's not agreed upon whether college students are consumers or students. How, how have you worked that out? What has been the evolution of that, of that tension? Well, I, I think that that tension has always been there. I think if it, it's been exacerbated in uh, the last couple of decades because of the range of choices that are out there, both new providers that are in online providers, uh, much more information for consumers. But, but I think that, you know, the biggest place where it comes in is, you know, if you look at what, what shapes the choice of colleges for places, right? I would say that there are several things. There's, there's the, what are people taught? There's the curriculum, but then there's also what are the co-curricular and extracurricular activities 
And so that may be sports teams or choirs or bands or clubs or other things that are going on. And, and then there's the pieces of the amenities, right? Because running a, I say to people, running a small university is like running a, running a small town, right? You, you've got a police force, you've got food, you've got residents. And so the piece that we've tried to stay away from at Chatham, I would say that there are some colleges and universities that are really competing on amenities. So that's where you see like the, the stories about the lazy rivers or the, 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 the dorms that are like four and five star hotels where, you know, you get a text on your phone when your laundry's done and it's all folded and ready for you. And so people, it's almost like buying into a country club, right? Where, where people are going for an overarching lifestyle. Whereas I think, you know, what we're trying to do is have offer a great overall developmental experience because i think increasingly if you say why would people pay the high cost to go to four years of residential college it's not just about what they learn in the classrooms obviously that's key and you need faculty who are really going to push you but it's about students individuals young adults maturing from where they were in high school where they're mostly receivers of that wisdom to being co-creators of knowledge, right? By the time our students finish, we want them doing research and publishing with their faculty. We want them getting out there and starting their own company or nonprofit organization, or really helping to create new knowledge, whether it's art or writing or other things. And so it's that transition and all the maturity that comes with it that I think the undergraduate experience is really about. And one really great way to illustrate this. So, you know, we just had our reunion last week. And it, when you talk to our alums who are back from 50 years ago, what they all point to as their most transformational educational experience was something that Chatham had called the arts course, where for four terms, students were required to go to all of the different cultural things around Chatham. So they'd go to the opera, the symphony, the museums, and then they'd come back and they'd write about it. They'd critique it. And and. Most of them said at the time they really resented this. They weren't given any choice about these. They had to go to all of these different things. But when you ask them 50 years later, what do you remember most and what had the biggest impact of your Chatham education? They point to that because they didn't just learn from that, but they became lifelong appreciators of the arts that they wouldn't have been if they'd been forced to do it. My worry with how education has evolved now, where it's much more of a smorgasbord approach, is that we don't do that as much for students. We don't require them to do things that they might not want to do now, even if we believe it will be to their long-term benefit, because the pressure is to give, give them more choice and to do more of just what they want to take now. And so when you look at gen ed and requirements, that's a constant tension we see in colleges. I think that comes back to the question of, of student versus consumer. The canon is gone. The canon was taught to students, the smorgasbord serves customers. And with the intellectual dismantlement of the canon over the last two centuries and calling into question traditional systems of belief for whatever reason, justifiably or not justifiably, you can be a fan of Edmund Burke or not be a fan of Edmund Burke, but the canon has been dismantled. We see this K through 12, frankly, and college education. And it's now become a politicized issue that's on the front pages of, of, of all the papers. That's an archaic reference, folks, to when people used to read newspapers. So with the canon being dismantled, this value chain 
to the students has shifted, I think, in the direction of the consumer. Hence, you usually reference the arms race for amenities and the loss of precise, not if not precise, but at least focused, established, canonical curriculum. What has replaced that? Is it is it coherent? Is is the smorgasbord intellectually coherent? I, as a parent, have to ask that question of my, you know, in regard to my child. And as an administrator, you you have this tension of wanting to offer the smorgasbord. But knowing you probably know that the canon is is suffering as a result, how do you how do you try to resolve that? Well, I, I think it's it's not easy, but I, I, there's a really interesting example of of an effort at this. I, as, as you know, I have my own podcast on the future of higher education, and I interviewed Ben Nelson, who's the founder of the Minerva Project, and this is the the, the virtual global university. So they start for a year together in San Francisco, and then the students go off, and every other semester of their undergraduate degree, they're in a different global city. But as radical as that is, I'd argue their approach to the curriculum is equally radical. And so when you think about the canon being dismantled, there's two different things going on. One is the consumer culture. But the other thing, is, as we know from our broader society, is there there is no recognized definition out there of what is it important for everyone to learn, right? I mean, the canon originally was you had to learn Latin and Greek. You were preparing most people to enter the the, the priesthood or the ministry or, or a very few range of other occupations. Now we, we have a much broader range of places where people are trying to go. There's much more of a sense that you need to prepare people for that wide range of work outcomes. But so what, what Minerva has done is they've redefined the canon not around a set body of knowledge, but more an underlying set of competencies that they think need to make informed and engaged citizens and successful careers in the 21st century. So it's the ability to think critically, to solve problems. It's what we talk about is what a liberal arts education will develop, only they've tried to take it to the next level where it's really using tools about what students are doing. And by doing a much more team-based approach to education, they've tried to integrate it across the whole four years of the experience. What I would say, the way we try to strike the balance in most liberal arts institutions is we say, there, there isn't going to be a set thing that everyone needs to know, but if you're going to do a major, so if you're going to major in finance or you're going to major in biology, here are the sets of things you need to know in that major. And then we define a set of minors, which has a similar set of things, lesser number of courses, but which things that might complement the major. And then there are certain gen ed requirements that we want all students to know. So as an example, one of the reasons choose Chatham, students choose Chatham is for sustainability, our major focus on the environment. We believe that with the, with the existential challenge of climate change, that every informed citizen for this century needs to understand what's happening on the planet, needs to understand the interdependence of these systems. And so whether they're majoring in it or not, we want all students to have taken a course or more that that informs them about that. Likewise, we have some a, a requirement around being a good writer. So you have to, to have two writing intensive courses. And so I think we're trying to deal with it not in as uh, comprehensive a way as Minerva is, where they as a startup, they're able to rethink everything from scratch, but 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 in trying to get the balance between it's not what Brown does, which says no prescribed curriculum, take whatever you want for the four years, but it's also uh, not the old prescribed, you know, we're going to say lockstep, everyone needs to know these things. Because one of the other things that changed, right, that was 
a canon, but it was a canon mostly of of old white men, right? And so part of the diversity we have now is saying we we want to reflect wider viewpoints. So uh, an advertisement for Chatham's, uh, I believe it's Eaton Hall. Why don't you do a, a minute or two advertisement there, David? Sure. On, on, so, on so, that program. So so we have a whole campus at Eden Hall and a school, the Falk School of Sustainability, that's devoted to being basically a living learning lab of what a more sustainable future might look like. And so our most famous alum from Chatham is Rachel Carson, the environmental pioneer. And so what we really think of this school as doing at both the undergraduate and the graduate level is doing what the planet and Pittsburgh need, which is new generations of Rachel Carsons who can go out and make a huge difference on the huge range of challenges. So I just, I was hosting a, a, a group here, a new, interesting new startup here in Pittsburgh, Bloomfield Robotics. So what they do is they do a, a high-tech camera combined with AI so that they can monitor the health of individual plants. In So if you have thousands of vines in a vineyard, they can go by and tell you at every plant level that needs more water. This one has some kind of pest and whatnot. And so this is just one of thousands of solutions we need to figure out how to feed 9 billion plus people, how to reduce global warming. And so I think what we're going to see is every sector of the economy being impacted this. I know in yours, you're thinking about sustainable investing, right? How do we do our investing based on what our, our, the people who are giving us money want that can make people money, but also do it in a way that helps the planet, right? And so, so I think this is going to be something that is really going to be important for students, whatever they're studying over the coming decades. So thank you. And again, I encourage everyone to take a look at Chatham, C-H-A-T-H-A-M dot E-D-U, uh, Chatham Education for Your Higher Educational Requirements. Let's shift now to inside the institution, inside any higher education institution, and a little bit back to the economics there, not just the relationship to the customer or the student, but also the incentive system, the organization uh, about that. An institution of higher education can be somewhat opaque. There are the faculty, and, and we were discussing in, in the green room and prior, the, the pricing incentives there are off a little bit. There is the administration, there's the student body, there are medieval forms of corporate governance, and it can, uh, as controversies arise, and uh, anyone following social media is aware that there are almost constantly controversies involving curriculum and faculty and free speech on university campuses right now. The universities are divided, but in a different way, divided as much as the country is, but in a very different way, reflecting the structure of, of these institutions. Let's talk a little bit again from the economic perspective about, about pricing. What a, what's a student getting? What's a teacher providing? You yourself mentioned that there's a, a huge uh, signaling and pricing incentive mismatch. And I think the parents and the 18-year-old should be aware of this right when they get on campus because it's going to uh, inform their experience for the next four years. Well, two, two pieces of advice that I give parents, students, as they're trying to think about where to go. One, because the uh, an unfortunate side effect of this, what, what we've seen happen over the last few decades with rankings and, and whatnot is a huge amount of pressure that folks feel. And I tell them, you know, there are 4,000 institutions of higher education just in the U.S. It's not about getting into the highest ranked place. It's about finding the, the place or places that are a good fit for you. Where, where, will, where will you get the best experience? And there, there's a wide range of types of institutions and choices for that. But the second thing I point to is 
when you're thinking about buying any good or service, it really makes sense to pick the place where what you're buying is what they really specialize in. And I think one of the most misunderstood things about higher ed in the U.S. is that the places that tend to be the highest rated, the top research universities like the Ivy League, Stanford, you know, places where I've been, Rutgers University, the State University of New Jersey, USC, you know, the, one of the largest privates. What, what is not often understood by parents and students is that when you look at the incentives for the faculty in those research universities, the hierarchy is research first, second, third, and then teaching, and then service. And so if the faculty spend too much time on delivering a great undergrad educational experience, that can actually hurt them in their careers because they're not publishing enough in the top journals. They're not getting enough grants, which is what will get them tenure, which raises a whole other issue about lifetime employment, one of the only segments left where that still exists, right? And so there's all of those tensions within a higher ed. Whereas having spent my career in both those research universities and liberal arts colleges like the Claremont Colleges or Chatham, one of the things I love about Chatham is I think the incentives are aligned. What we focus on is delivering a great educational experience to the students. And that's what the faculty are there for. They're all active scholars. They all need to publish, but they do it in the service of being a great teacher. And we never say to them, oh, you need to publish a sole author journal article. Don't work with a student on a publication because that will be High, more highly valued in the tenure process. We say, no, we want to reward you to spending time mentoring students so that you can do joint things together. And we want you to spend your, your first and foremost, your priority to be to deliver a great student experience and advise students. And so I, you know, I think going to liberal arts institutions that focus on undergraduate education and then going to research universities for graduate education where the grad students are much more closely aligned with that, I, I think that to me, that's where you're, you, you pick the institutions that fit with what you're paying. To minimize these incentive mismatches, which seem to be built into the system. If I'm not mistaken, an institution like Pitt, and I've imagined many others, has what are called clinical professors or clinical associate professors or clinical assistant professors, meaning they are more closely rewarded for teaching and the uh, publishing uh, expectation is diminished for them so that they can achieve the goals of a professor, as it were, uh, tenure and uh, uh, something other than an adjunct existence by good teaching and being rewarded for good teaching. So there's some progress. I, I don't believe that clinical professors, that that term existed, a term of art existed three or four decades ago. It's, it's right. a relatively new development. Uh, it is. And it, it's sort of been important where it did exist. And the reason why it's called clinical is it existed a lot. We, you know, our largest degrees at Chatham are in the health sciences. So clinical there meant people who were healthcare practitioners who had a clinical knowledge and they would bring it. Now, a lot of universities have created clinical or professors of practice that are are just as you described. They tend to have heavy teaching loads and they're they're not judged based on whether they're publishing or getting grants. They're judged based on the quality of their teaching. But those in many places, at Chatham, you can get promoted in that track. At a lot of places, you can't. And then this is another place where the incentives are misaligned, right? If you look in those large research universities, where is a lot of the entry-level teaching being done for the first and second year? It's in large classes, often done by graduate students or a clinical professor or, or adjunct faculty, right? What we've seen over the last 30 years in higher ed is more and more of the teaching being done 
by casual employment or, or part-time faculty rather than full-time faculty because the full-time faculty cost the institution so much more. And so one of the ways of, of trying to make the budget balance has been to shift the balance. So you keep tenure, but fewer and fewer of the of the of all of the teaching or the work being done in higher ed is by the tenured faculty as as a percentage. But still a clinical professor is a clinical professor of whatever art is still gonna going to be a better lifestyle and probably a better experience for the student than an, an adjunct. So it is a reasonable Absolutely. compromise. Oh, yeah. no, I think it's, it, it, I think it's a step forward to create, I think it's better for the, it's much better as a life for the faculty member, right. To, uh, to have a full-time job with benefits being a clinical professor than have to do a large number of adjunct teaching. And it's better for the students because they have someone who's full-time, who's dedicated to them. But again, if you want to talk about economic incentives, right, what what produces the volume of faculty we have out of PhD programs? It's not, as you learned the hard way, right, in Russian history, it's not the 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 actual demand for those, particularly if things change like the end of the Cold War, right? We produce it because we have doctoral programs that have funded things around the faculty to do it. And so we have a misalignment between the production function of PhDs where we tend to have an oversupply in the humanities and the social sciences and the job market for them, right? So there's a hot job market for them in STEM disciplines, in business, because they have a lot of alternatives to academia, whereas we have a lot of these folks in, in adjunct or, or less than secure positions in higher ed because there's an oversupply of faculty, potential faculty relative to good jobs. Let's let's go further into the institution and some of the again economic incentives and signaling issues within a university, not just between the students and their teachers, but among the faculty, the students, and the administration. Uh, who's in Who's in charge? Is it you, David, or is it the faculty senate? And uh, how responsive are you to the student body and uh, the role of the board, in, in theory and in corporate? corporate governance, this is more theory than fact, there is a hierarchy which is pretty well state, uh, stated. There are shareholders, there's the the board, the board hires the executives, the executive hires the senior employees and so forth. does not work out that way. But on paper, it's nicely, I'm going to say hierarchical. I'm sorry, folks, if you are offended, but it is hi nicely hierarchical. It's the way things get done. In an academic institution, it seems more like a triangle of some sort uh, or a circle, and uh, which creates all sorts of, I'm sure, interesting moments for you as an administrator. Do you want to talk a little bit about who's in charge at a university? Sure. So, you know, uh, in my former life as a, as a faculty member researcher, right, one of the books I wrote was about uh, corporate boards. And, you know, I think one of the big debates there is between what you describe, which is been the predominant U.S. paradigm, which is shareholder governance and stakeholder governance, right? And, and the notion of stakeholders, which we're seeing more of now with B Corps, with the focus on ESG is actually the recognition. And this is the debate with Milton Friedman, right? About, you know, the just, purpose of a just, corporation, right? Yeah. The purpose of a corporation. And part of what we're seeing with climate change, with the degradation of the environment, with other things is if we don't price externalities, if we don't hold corporations accountable for what they're doing and simply short-term profit maximize, that may not be the right way 
to produce the outcomes we want from these entities in society. So that's a whole other debate. But what I would say, the reason for mentioning it is I think the notion of a stakeholder model of governance is much more what you see in higher ed, right? So in, in higher ed, what we tend to talk about is the notion of shared governance, that, that the way an institution works, because at the core of a, a great college or university is the faculty, right, is, is the notion of the areas where faculty should have primacy, which tends to be particularly around curriculum and what they're doing in the classroom and the protection of academic freedom. There's the administration, which is trying to make sure that we have enough money to keep the lights on, to run this small city, and to pay the faculty and, 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 and the staff and deliver a great education for the students. And then in a place like Chatham and most colleges and universities where the lion's share of their budget, in our case, over 90, 90% comes from tuition, room, and board, you have to be very sensitive to market force and what's going there because we don't have a multi-billion dollar endowment to fall back on, which might give you greater freedom to do things which, which students may or not may not be willing to pay for. So you're trying to balance all of those things. And on top of all of that, I found out that in addition to president, my title is road manager because we happen to be on a private road in, in Pittsburgh. And so I have to worry about keeping the streets plowed and are the drains overflowing. And so you just never know what's going to be in, in your responsibilities from one day to the next. So but I think that uh, the, that stakeholder model for all its virtues and a little bit more uh, egalitarian isn't as well worked out as hierarchical models. And so there's plenty of room for debate in a stakeholder model. It, it's more of a collective approach. You gotta get, it's less of an executive approach, more of a collective approach, more room for people to disagree. Maybe a good thing. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying from an, an optimization perspective, it's going to be a harder model. It is a harder model. Yeah, no, no question. And I think, you know, you know, one of the things they teach you when you become a college president is, is not to use the term control, right? It is the, the way universities and colleges work is not top-down control systems. And, and sometimes when they bring in private sector CEOs to run these institutions or generals to run them, they come with a very different mindset of what leadership is. And that tends not to go down very well within higher education. Is that why Eisenhower didn't last very long at Columbia? Uh, among other reasons, yeah. He decided being president of the U.S. was a much easier gig. He could actually order people to do things. So where, where are we heading? What, as you, from your perch and from these signaling issues and agency issues and conflict issues, all of the things that are, are swirling around in my head about higher education, that is the business approach to higher education, where, where are we heading? We had mentioned in, in the kind of the green room, there's some demographic issues, there's oversupply issues, not just the faculty in Russian studies decades ago, but also, there, as you think you said, there are 4,000 institutions of higher education. Is that 1,000 too many? Uh, are small liberal arts colleges going to you know really struggle to to survive uh, in even in a stakeholder model as opposed to a, a more traditional shareholder model? That is, what are, what are you looking for as the the driving issues in higher education over the next decade or so? I think two of the biggest ones. One, both of which you alluded to. One one is um, is demographics. So uh, one of the economists who I had a pleasure to interview on my podcast is a, uh, Nathan Graw. Uh, G-R-A-W-E, who's based at McAllister College. And his work has probably been the most influential in higher ed in the last five years or so. He's written a couple of books that trace out the demographic trends broken down by state 
um, by type of institution for the whole U.S. out through the mid-2030s. And what we know is that the, the, there's going to be a decline unless we have a, a massive amount of immigration, uh, which doesn't look likely, um, in the, the high school graduate population and therefore those going to college. Now, it, it varies the Southwest, the areas that are growing more will see less of it, but, but that's going to put huge pressure on institutions. And, and so I think the second thing you see is that the, the issue of, of new and expanding entrants. So we've had various things. We had the for-profit uh, movement in higher ed. That was the University of Phoenix to rise. Those have, have scaled back a long way because I think they weren't delivering, for the most part, high quality to the consumers. And they were relying on federal loans for the vast majority of their, their, their graduates, many of whom were, were not finishing. Um, that's scaled back, but now you have higher quality, large scale offerings. So you have the, the mega university. So the probably the three most notable Arizona State, Western Governors, and Southern New Hampshire University, they're all targeting serving 300,000 students by the end of this decade. And so that between them will be probably a million students in three. And much of that is online, correct? Much of that is online, though not exclusively. Some of it is hybrid, but much of it is online. In the case of Western governors in Southern New Hampshire, it's not just online, but it's competency-based. So you can actually do it at your own progress, accumulating uh, different building blocks of a degree that way. So you're going to have new entrants, plus we're seeing others coming in, particularly, as you mentioned, more vocational. So places like Google, Guild Education, others offering much more micro-credentials targeted to specific skill needs. So I think you're going to see new entrants coming in and a consolidation of the traditional base. And I think what all that leads up to is consolidation. And my worry is that if we don't get governance right, if boards are not able to make bold decisions, that consolidation is going to look like what's happened a lot in Vermont in the last few years, where they are the they are the one who's had the sharpest demographic decline. And what you've seen is the closure of a lot of small rural institutions because they have so few high school graduates in the state. I think the the what I would like to see more of is folks figuring out to come up with new institutional forms where you see partnerships, alliances, mergers, networks, where, where institutions can come together, do what they do best, but share back office costs, share courses and other things so that they can keep mission but figure out ways to do it more effectively. Um, and so one interesting example, the, the most recent guy I interviewed on my uh, podcast is, is Michael Horowitz, who runs something called TCS Education. It's one of the only private nonprofit networks of separately accredited institutions in the US. So they have five different institutions, each doing a different type of education, but with a shared finance, HR, legal, and, and shared online backbone. And so they, I think, figure out how to get the benefits of being both specialized, focused on students, but also benefits of scale. And so my hope is that what we'll see is that moves like that that will preserve what's best of it. Because just in our region, what really worries me is if you look, we have 35 colleges and, and universities just in the 10 counties around Pittsburgh. And many of those in the smaller rural ones, which are the ones that are most vulnerable, I think, because they they are, they're, they tend to be smaller institutions, that there's less preference for that. Th those are also, they're like what happened when the steel mill closed. If they go, their whole town 
that whole area, it's not just the jobs and the students there, but it's the cultural life of the place. In many cases, it's the medical infrastructure. And so there's a huge public cost to society. If we lose those institutions, you're going to be seeing much greater loss in terms of overall quality of life in the country. And yet that's where I think we're, we're really going to see tensions in the next decade. It does sound like, though, the new institutions that you're describing that are coming into being, although they in many ways are stakeholder-oriented, they are also very, very focused on customer, meaning it's not canon. It's what the customer wants. We're going to provide what the customer wants because that the economic overriding economic urgency to at least to stay in business, to, to keep the lights on is so paramount that we, we can't afford not to be very, very customer oriented uh, as opposed to the traditional medieval institutions where you're taught what we want to teach you. So to some extent, there's a, a natural tension there because even the customers, sometimes 18 year olds don't make very good decisions. I've heard it said that 18 year olds may not make very good decisions. Even 20 year olds sometimes don't make very good decisions. And so as customers, they not may not end up teach uh, uh, purchasing that which they want. And your best example of that is your Chatham graduates from 50 years ago. The least liked class turned out to be the most important class. So as we do shift from Canon to customer, there's this tension there that the Brown model is, there's a risk associated with that. We'll just have to acknowledge that there is a risk associated well, with the and, Brown and model. And just one thing I would mention there is the, the, the market that these three institutions are most focused on serving is really replacing what the for-profits were doing with a higher quality offering. And so another thing that's often missed in higher ed is over half of the students in U.S. higher ed are over 25 years old. And so what these are particularly doing is serving working adults who are often juggling family responsibilities, a full time or, or multiple jobs, and trying to advance their careers and get an education. And so what they're delivering is ways that enable people to balance that well. And so, you know, we do some of that at Chatham. Two of our most successful degrees are doctor of nursing practice and our occupational therapy doctorate. Those students only come to campus for six days over the whole degree. They're working in important jobs in the healthcare sector. Most of them have families, and yet we're figuring out a way for them to learn it in a way that's very structured, that meets what they need for their careers, that, that helps them to advance that. And so that, that part of the segment, I would say, it's not just customer versus student, but it's also market. It's being sensitive to what are the signals, what are employers wanting, and being able to balance all of that. And so I think we're going to see a lot of that going forward. Well, I hope that is certainly the case for, for Chatham. Um, my guest has been David Feingold, the president uh, of uh, Chatham University. David, thank you so much for joining me and for uh, sharing your thoughts on signals, incentives, the economics of higher education. And hopefully you'll be able to come back in a couple of years and uh, report us on, on your progress. I look forward to it, Dan. Great to speak with you.